I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success, an organization that provides women with interview suits and career development. Nancy started the organization when she was 23, and Dress for Success operates in more than 70 cities in four countries. How did you initially come up with the idea to clothe women in suits to prepare them for interviews, job interviews? When I was a little girl, my father once told me that when he was interviewing secretaries um, at his law firm, he would look out the window and watch them go from the car to the building. And he would know before they reached the building whether or not he'd hire them based solely on what they looked like. And I thought that was the most horrible thing I had ever heard. (laughs) And I said, that's terrible. And he said, you're right, it is terrible, but it's the way the world works. So go comb your hair. Wow. It just stuck with me. I think especially as women, you know, you get dressed a certain way when you go out on a date. You get dressed a certain way when you go home for Thanksgiving. You dress a certain way when you have, you know, you see your friends or you're going to school or going for a job interview. They're uniforms. I mean, even if they're not, you know, pinstriped and they don't have a number on the back, we wear uniforms every day. So did you always know, okay, I'm going to start Dress for Success, or what What was the idea, or what was the catalyst for starting it? The catalyst was that I hated law school. I was in law school. I thought I wanted to, I watched too much like L.A. Law as a kid. So I was in law school. I was miserable. And um, it was one of those cold, rainy February days, and I had, you know, my backpack on with like five textbooks in it, and they're all three inches thick. It was just awful. I got home and there was this envelope in the mail addressed to me with the return address from a lawyer in Florida. And um, there's a check inside for me for $5,000 from the estate of my great-grandfather, which was really weird Mm. because he had died a number of years earlier. So I'd already mourned him. And I guess these things take a long time to process. But it was strange to get a windfall from the death of someone who in my family was like our Horatio Alger. And it was just really strange. And I got in the elevator and the idea literally came to me. He, he sort of rescued me from law school. What did he do? Well, he came from Poland and he was the sixth male um, in his family. And at the time, Jewish males in Poland were conscripted into the army when they reached the age of 18 for 20 years. <laughs> so his family knew that his five older brothers were all you know, doomed for the army for 20 years. And so when he was born, they hit his birth. They never celebrated a birthday, never sent him to school or anything. And when he sort of hit around puberty, they put him on a boat for America. And he came to Ellis Island. He didn't know any English. They asked him his birthday, and he didn't know. I don't even think he understood the question. So they assigned him December 25th. So we always celebrated, you know, my Jewish great-grandfather's birthday on Christmas Day, (laughs) although we never knew how old he was. And, uh, um, you know, he became a peddler like so many other immigrants. And he literally, he sold, you know, everything from bath mats to, like, I remember when he was selling pickles. Um, just jars and jars of pickles. You know, he, he bought a couple shares of some company, IBM, and and never understood why they sent him checks. He never, like, sold anything. He just hoarded all kinds of things. And, and I would just remember being a little girl thinking that I was helping him cross the street, and he thought he was helping me cross the street. You know, sort of that meeting of the generations. He was sort of more mythical to me than he was real. You know, the stories about him. Because you can't really get to know someone when you're, like, five and they're, you know, 80 million years old. So... It was really strange when he died because here was this heroic American dream type person who started with nothing and, you know, worked his whole life and all that stuff. And so it's it's what was I going to take a vacation on mm-hmm. that five thousand dollars or like buy some Jimmy Choo's? I mean, you know, <laughs> this is, that's just not right. <laughs> you know, So I the idea literally came to me in the elevator. Granted, it's a slow pre-war elevator. But um, by the time I got to the sixth floor, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it. 
And of course, the joke is my great grandfather and the rest of my family all just wanted me to stay in law school. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, my great grandfather probably rolled over in his grave mm-hmm. at the thought of me starting a not for profit. You know, the name Dress for Success is so catchy. Did you come up with the name in the elevator as well, or no. you just came up with the concept? In fact, I fought. I fought the name. I thought the name was incredibly cheesy. And well, cheesy works sometimes. <laughs> cheesy totally works. And it was actually the nuns who came up with the idea uh, for the name Dress for Success, and it took me six months to be able to say it with a straight face. Do you remember it? You know, it's kind of become like the the Kleenex of that space. Everybody knows what it it is and symbolizes. And no, it was a brilliant name. The nuns that they 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 totally got. We had a couple of battles about whether or not we should be giving out pantsuits. They thought the pantsuits were a passing feminist fad. So I had to convince them that both feminism and pantsuits were probably here to stay. And they convinced you that the name Dress for Success exactly. works. Now, you keep mentioning the nuns. <laughs> right. What, what role did the nuns play in the beginning of this, this organization? Right. Why would a Jewish girl from Hartford start an organization with three nuns from Spanish Harlem? It's a good question. Um, so I was in law school at the time, like I said, and, and I was I mean, new to New York. I really had never been here before. And so I went up to one of my professors and said, you know, I have this idea. What do you think? And he said... Talk to Sister Mary Nerney. And and my only interaction with nuns was like playing Sister Berta in the sixth grade version of The Sound of Music. <laughs> I was like singing background and how do you solve a problem like Maria. But but nuns are really cool. Nuns are, you know, Catholic social workers, basically. You know, mm-hmm. all the Jews become social workers and the Catholics become nuns. Mm-hmm. I called them up. They were like, come on up. I got lost on my way to Spanish Harlem. I mean, I really didn't know my way around. And um, met with them. They understood immediately the problem. And each one had a different story of someone they were sending for a job interview who didn't show up to the interview because she felt she was inappropriately dressed or showed up in an interview in like a, a, a Sergio Tacchini tracksuit because it was the most expensive thing she owned. So she wow. thought that must be the nicest. And they, they got it immediately. So I looked at them and said, be the board of directors. And they said, no, go get a rich white guy from a bank. And I said, no, no, no. You know, I've got $5,000. And was this still your first year of law school when you came to this idea? This was February of my first year of law school. And did you stick it out for three years? Well, not really. I uh, I finished that first year of law school. My second year of law school, we actually started dressing clients. And um, fortunately, we found a space in the basement of a church that happened to be right across the street from the law school. So I would run back and forth in between classes. There's one class, admin law, that I actually signed up for, did not go to a single class, bought like the the book that summarizes the whole thing. I showed up for the exam, and apparently there were multiple sections of admin law, and I didn't even know my professor's name. So I had to go to the registrar's office to find out where my exam was and took the took the exam. I mean, I really was, I was a bad law student. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success, the organization that dresses women's in, in suits for interviews. What was it like logistically in the early days? How did you get the first suits to dress women, and how did you find the women to dress them? The nuns and I decided we didn't want to pass judgment on the women themselves coming to us. We didn't want to just be a storefront and have people drop in and we look at them and say, yeah, you're poor enough. Here's a suit. You know, that that makes no sense. Um, And we wanted to make sure they had actual interviews set because you would dress someone differently if they were interviewing, say, for an entry-level position at Solomon Smith Barney than if they were interviewing for, say, being a preschool assistant teacher. So everyone had to come to us by referral only. So instead of screening the women, we screened the agencies. Any not-for-profit in New York City was eligible. This was also during the the welfare-to-work era. It was part of a phenomenon called creaming. I don't know if you're familiar with that, like like a, a hot chocolate or a coffee where there's the cream off the top. So we were helping move the cream off the top into work. So it was fun to come volunteer and see these women who were going to make it. 
most of them. And these women who were coming to you, were they sheepish or embarrassed by it? Or were they, did they totally buy into what you were providing them? You know, there is no one stereotype of the Dress for Success client. I, there is no such thing as the welfare mom. I never met her. There were like Russian immigrants who would come to us and scrutinize every seam. You know, they, they, they knew the clothing and they, oh, every stitch and where it was made. And they were really funny. And then, you know, there were the clients who came and, couple clients who came, frankly, from prison and only wanted pantsuits because they were tattooed and they didn't want to show off their legs or because they had never worn a skirt before or it was sort of too feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, there were clients in just all different shapes and sizes and like everything I had studied in life and feminism about the diversity of women. I was actually like living practically and, and seeing and interacting with. It was it was really it was really awesome. And how did you get the suits to dress them? Women cleaned out their closets. I loved Atkins. I mean, Atkins really <laughs> helped us. We got all of our, I mean, when Atkins started, we would get women coming in with full wardrobes. You know, that was amazing. And also, the corporate casual hit. So, like, um, Arthur Anderson, when it still existed, right? Arthur Anderson went corporate casual, and all of a sudden, we had navy blue suits. And, oh, my gosh, I remember when Goldman Sachs relaxed their dress code. And, and we got some weird donations, too. I mean, people would give us wedding dresses and blankets and baby clothes, even though we couldn't be more clear. This is women going for work. I don't know who wears a wedding dress to a job interview. and um, But we would get some weird stuff. One woman sent us a box of clothing, and we opened it up, and I swore the cat itself was going to jump out. There was so much cat hair all over <laughs> everything. But um, I remember one woman from Goldman Sachs brought us a garbage bag full of clothing, and we thought, oh, God, what's going to be in the garbage bag? You know, and we opened up and it was all like a manual Angaro collection size 14 suits. We were like jackpot. And it was, yeah, and it was always fun to sort through the donations. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success, the organization that dresses women's in, in suits for interviews. Did you think at the time that you were going to do this full time and this was going to be your career? Or did you think, OK, I'm going to do this nonprofit on the side and then I'm going to do something else? Yeah, I had no idea. I was 23. What did I know? Well, I started out with that $5,000. The nuns told me to put it into a six-month CD. I took financial advice from nuns. <laughs> we started the organization with no money. And what was I thinking? And speaking of financial advice, you do provide now financial advice and self-confidence and development training. How did that evolution happen? Yeah, Dress for Success, we quickly realized, had to become about more than just suits. The public image is really about the transition from welfare to work. But a lot of the hard work actually happens in helping the clients keep their jobs. The other interesting thing about the welfare-to-work phenomena was that agencies were getting their public funding based on numbers. How many people could you move, quote-unquote, from welfare-to-work? And once you got them into work is when you got your check as an agency. And there wasn't much incentive to help them keep their jobs. And frankly, a lot of the people, the agencies, didn't have the background or experience. And so we realized because we had this network of professional women donating clothing to us, feeling quite close to us, that we could start um, and we could help. And we were also last to see the clients and sort of in the most professional setting. um, That we could, so we created something called the Professional Women's Group. And that was solely for newly working women, for our clients who had moved from welfare to work and were now in jobs to meet once a month to talk about working women's issues. What are some of those issues that that came up? A lot of the clients had um, never had to have consistent daycare. Um, 
You know, what does that mean? What's appropriate at the office holiday party? Just because there's drinks don't, doesn't mean you should go hit the bottle. You know, what do you do when you go to lunch with your boss? Don't order the strawberries in January. You know, they're really expensive off season. Um, maybe don't order something that's like a finger food. You know, just basic etiquette that some people learn because you have a mom or a dad with a job or a friend with a job. But if nobody you know works in a big office building in Midtown and you're the only one on the block, you have no way of knowing those things. Um, you know, they all emulated Oprah. They really didn't have role models and people to talk to about this. It's also very lonely mm. when you're the only one on your block and your friends start saying, oh, you think you're all that now or you can't help out and contribute to cooking or babysitting because you now have a job. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success, an organization that provides counseling and professional clothes to women for job interviews. We'll hear more from Nancy coming up. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success, an organization that provides women with interview suits and career development. Nancy started the organization when she was 23, and Dress for Success operates in more than 70 cities in four countries. What percent of the women who came to you to borrow suits initially actually stayed in their jobs? The it's, it's a very interesting question. A lot of people would get starter jobs and then transition into other sorts of jobs. So you would start out with like an entry-level position, or frankly, a lot of women would start out with like nighttime hours, which was totally not workable for their families and their lifestyles. So there was actually quite a bit of movement. Um, you did, though, have extreme economic growth in the 90s, so they could get onto ladders. There were great training programs at places like Chase for bank tellers. I've never met a woman who didn't want, didn't want to work. I mean, I, I say that. <laughs> it's funny to say that now as I'm eight months pregnant, and I know a lot of people who just want to stay home. But nobody wants to be on welfare. Nobody grows up saying, I, I want the state to take care of me. I want to go stand in line and get my check. Um, I, you know, want to be part of that public image. Everybody likes having a sense of purpose and being part of contributing to the world and um, knowing that you're taking care of your family. And I think especially these women who realized that when they went to work, they became role models for their own kids. Let me, let me tell you a story. Um, one of my favorite clients, um, it was a really, really busy day in the shop. And I was overwhelmed. There were so many, and I didn't have any help. And one of the clients just started helping out the other clients. Mm. She was just terrific. And I said, I, I want to talk to you. What's, what, let's get to know each other. Let's go have coffee. She had worked for what was then New York Telephone for a number of years. And then she had a child. And her child was born mostly deaf and mostly blind. Very hard to get daycare, nursery care, you know, babysitter. Very expensive for a special needs child. So for a while, she took a leave of absence from work. Her Eventually, that ran out, and New York Telephone said, sorry, see ya. Then she had no money. She stayed with um, her mother, which is also the definition of homelessness, by the way, is quite loose. Um, she, you know, A lot of people live with family to family, and they move around on couches, and that, that really is homeless. Her mother was taking care of this child, but her mother became sick. She was then taking care of both her mother and her child and couldn't work. And I said, what's different now? And, and she said to me, he just got himself a scholarship to the Jewish Guild for the Blind. And I love the way she said that also, like uh, attributing it to him. 
I said, that's fabulous. He he can go back to school. You can go back to work. She said, you know what? More importantly, I can be a role model for him now. She said, I want to go back to work, not just so that I can support us, but so that he can see that I can be a working mom. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success, the organization that dresses women in, in suits for interviews. It seems like uh, women came to you easily in the early days, and dresses and suits came to you easily. What was harder for you than, than you thought? Oh, everything was hard. First, there was finding a space. This was in 96, where there was a real estate boom in New York. Um, you know, every dot com was paying, you know, $40 a square foot for space. Everything was in my apartment for a couple of months. I mean, literally, the crisper in my fridge was where we kept the jewelry. Shoes were shoved in the oven. Clearly, I don't cook. Um, you know, the shower rod was where we hung all the blouses because it also got the um, the wrinkles out. I took a broom and put it over two chairs and hung all the skirts there. And my bed, I slept on half my bed because I shared the bed with sweater. So clearly I also had no social life. I mean, you know, it was it was totally overwhelming. Large size suits. I mean, I, I talk about all these, you know, Goldman Sachs giving us suits and Arthur Anderson. Those average sizes were about an eight. The average size woman is about a 12. The average size dress for success client is about an 18. So, you know, that's why I said we really loved Atkins because it was those size 24s and 26s that we needed. And sometimes when I say 24 and 26, people look at me and say, do you mean European sizing? (laughs) No, I mean American. I mean good old burger eating American sizing, 24 and 26. And that was constantly a struggle. Um, Wide shoes, large shoes, um, new shoes were always really hard. And um, raising money was also really hard. How did you go about raising money? I I don't have a a famous last name. I'm not a New York kid or socialite. I'm from Hartford, Connecticut. I don't have family here. Um, I don't come from, you know, that kind of tradition. So it wasn't like I could call up the, you know, the rich uncle and say, how about writing me a big check or the family foundation, you know, to tap. Our first grant was from the New York Community Trust. We applied for a $25,000 grant so that I could hire someone to help. And uh, I remember the woman came to do a site visit and interviewed me, and she was asking me these really hard questions and probing questions. And it was the first time that we'd, I'd really been um, pushed. And I was so nervous and wanted this money so badly, and I was so earnest, I cried. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bawled, like tears streaming down. Couldn't be less professional. Couldn't have been more heartfelt, <gasps> so passionate. And she kept a straight poker face. Like, she did not even hand me a Kleenex. Ooh. And I'm literally like wiping my tears on my sleeve and, and not like begging, saying, please give us the money, but just saying to her, this is so important to the women that we're dressing. And but it she worked. Left. She, she left. I thought we were never going to hear from her again, but we did get the $25,000. And I bump into her every once in a while, every couple of years in town. And, and we both just laugh. <laughs> Note, crying doesn't necessarily <laughs> yield success every time. No, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. And, and, and that was the first and last time. Look, the thing about being an entrepreneur is it's really, it's not a job. I, I, I loved every minute at Dress for Success, and I never put it down at 5 o'clock or even when I went to bed. It was the last thing I thought of before I went to sleep. I dreamt about it all night, and I woke up thinking about it. And you woke up seeing it on your bed with the sweaters. <laughs> exactly, and I rolled over onto it. I mean, it, it was all-consuming. And uh, that's the thing about being an entrepreneur. It's you're not... You don't say, I think I want to start a business and I'm just going to figure out what it is. It's that you have this passion for something and you just have to do it. It's a way of life. Yeah. 
So at what point did Dress for Success become your full-time job? I mean, you said at first that it was something that you were doing on the side. How did how did that happen? Well, pretty quickly it took off. I mean, the need was far more enormous than we ever predicted. Agencies just kept calling us saying, I've got more and more clients. There were a lot of job interviews to be had back then, and there were a lot of women who really didn't have appropriate things to wear and lacked the confidence which is really what we were doing. You're dressing them in like a, a coat of confidence kind of thing. And we wanted to meet the need. We didn't want to slow down. So it just grew and grew. And then the news media somehow got a hold of it. And it was such a visual. I mean, everybody loves a makeover. So there was such a good visual story. So we had a lot of media attention, and it just mushroomed. But was there one or a foundation or one company that was pivotal in getting you to financial health? Yeah, you know, Avon was a really phenomenal company to dress for success. They gave us funding. They gave us pearls for all of our clients nationwide um, so that every client left with a brand new strand of pearls and the clients would look in the mirror and say, oh, my grandma had a strand of pearls. Or The pearls were so symbolic to them of being a working woman or being established. It was, it was really wonderful. So they were really great. But I also had some great mentors at Avon and Avon just as a company about women and women entrepreneurs was just put me on the right track mm-hmm. and they were just really good to us. Was there one uh, piece of media that really uh, was an inflection point for for the organization? Yeah, there were two. Um, 60 Minutes. And apparently at the at the Columbia J School, there is something they talk about there called the 60 Minutes Effect. The Columbia School of Journalism. And it, it's true. I mean, it really does exist. So we doubled in size after 60 Minutes. And then we were on Oprah, then we doubled again. By the way, were your parents complicit or supportive of what you were doing? There was no support whatsoever from my family in the beginning. They thought I was crazy. Just finish law school. Put that in the bank. Pay off your credit card debt. Uh, no support whatsoever. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success, the organization that dresses women in, in suits for interviews. Now, you're also the CEO of Do Something, an online organization committed to getting young people involved in community action. Why did you move from Dress for Success to do something? You know, I I am truly an entrepreneur, and um, entrepreneurs get bored. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are still called entrepreneurs. They founded one thing, and they're just managing it, and they're going to be taken out on stretchers. (laughs) And that just, that wasn't me. I mean, once I got Dress for Success to the point where there were systems in place and there was money in the bank, and anybody could run it, I was bored because I, I'm i not anybody. I'm weird. And I'm, I'm not even saying that necessarily with pride. It's more like factual. I think it's one of those things you're, you're born with that gene. And um, you're the person who sees a fire and you just go running into the building, whereas all the sane people stand outside and call 911 and, you know, watch the hunky fireman come put out the fire. Unfortunately, I, I like the action and I get bored really easily. Do you feel any stigma attached to the fact that you left Dress for Success rather than staying put? My fear in life is that I'll die and Dress for Success will be on my tombstone. There are a lot of young entrepreneurs out there now uh, who, who started things and left them in their 30s, and we all have that same fear. Mm. And we're all looking to be bitten by the bug again. And because it's that innate thing... It, it, it can't be something that you just decide, oh, I'm going to go into like the chocolate chip cookie space or I'm going to start a clothing label. It has to be, oh, my gosh, I have to do this. And there's this dying need and I'm exactly the right person to do it where there are a lot of us sort of feeling that way and searching that way. The other thing is 
um, a lot of entrepreneurs or people called entrepreneurs really do never leave. And um, I, a lot of people ask me about that and are they assume that something must have gone wrong or that the people at Dress for Success didn't like me or I wasn't doing a good job. And the truth of the matter is I emailed with three Dress for Success affiliates this morning alone. Mm-hmm. I still, you know, talked to them and I, I loved it. But I really just feel like um, I could have died there. And how old were you at the time? <clears throat> 30. I just turned 30. So that may also be part of it. It was like the 30-year-old sort of crisis thing. And I'm, and uh, it was like time to focus on me and, and separate me from Dress for Success for both me and the organization. Look... I've always said there are czars and there are leaders. And czars build things and only leave power when their heads are cut off. (laughs) And leaders build things that are sustainable, and then they move on. I had no desire to ever have my head cut off. I want to talk about your personal life during Dress for Success. This will Uh, be short. (laughs) Well, why would it be short? Because there was no personal life. I I wasn't part of the equation. I mean, that's kind of one of the, like, the, the Dress for Success founding story seems to come back to me on a personal note. And the big joke is there was no Nancy Lublin. Mm. I, I was dressed for success. I I went to, you know, college reunions and cocktail parties, and it's all I talked about. I went to Thanksgiving, and I tried to fundraise off my 92-year-old aunt. And, and was that an active decision, or was it kind of um, taking over you uh, by inertia and uncontrollably, possibly? I mean, I, I hated law school. I loved Dress for Success. I And I don't know if, like, do you not date and have relationships because you're super busy, or do you make yourself super busy because you're lonely? I mean, there's the... Classic. Now I sound like a Sex in the City episode, you know, and I could be Carrie Bradshaw on my computer. But there was like a year and a half in there when I didn't even kiss anybody. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'll tell you the real story. At some point, once Dress for Success really became successful and I was running Dress for Success worldwide at this point and I was starting to get bored, I realized that I needed some sort of an outlet and a hobby. And I started playing poker. I started playing poker in illegal clubs in New York and underground <laughs> clubs in New York. And it was like me and big fat guys from Staten Island and New Jersey it was my chance. I like testosterone-filled rooms. Big, I mean, seriously, big, fat, scary guys. And, uh, you know, playing for money. And I loved that. It was like the whole other side of my personality. I, it, I, it's not a social life. Um, this was before poker was on television and became cool. But it was like I could get out my competitive side. I wasn't the charity girl. And no one cared who I was. No one knew. And I could be anonymous and just think about the cards. And, uh, yeah, no, I had a real poker problem for a while. And some testosterone around you didn't hurt either. It was great. I mean, not like you're going to date somebody you meet in a poker club. Good Lord. (laughs) So you got bored with Dress for Success. But did you also say, okay, I need to to get a piece of myself back as well? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I was still, you know, I was 30 years old and I was still sleeping on a futon from college. And I still had, you know, like make your own furniture from Ikea and not even like the nice stuff from Ikea. (laughs) It was just time to work on me. It was time to leave. It took me a long time to come to terms with like, this is who I am and I better learn to like it and deal with the fact that some people I come in contact with are going to find me um, too loud and um, too shocking and too, you know, weird and quirky. And other people are going to think, are going to look in the mirror and find that I'm just like them. It took me a long time to find um, friends and get comfortable in my own skin. Fortunately, I met my husband basically um, two months before I gave notice and realized there was this whole other world out there and I wanted to spend time with him. And um, and how did you meet him? Actually, he also started a not-for-profit in New York. 
he started something called Cab Watch, which turned all the taxi drivers into the eyes and ears of the police and worked on driver safety and things like that. And we were both nominated for New Yorker of the Year and lost. <laughs> we were standing in the back of the room making fun of the winner, actually, because he was a total dork. <laughs> so we like to say that um, Brooke Astor introduced us because she sponsored the award. And what is he doing now? He's he's an entrepreneur, so he's uh, he's one of the guys trying to put credit cards in cabs nationwide. I need that. <laughs> Not as much as I do. <laughs> so, so, yeah, no, two entrepreneurs came together, which is also str- – I mean, we made a deal for the sake of our children and our mortgage that we'd only do one startup at a time. Mm-hmm. So it's his turn right now, and, uh, and then it'll be my turn. Before it's your turn, you're continuing to operate Do Something. I love Do Something. The Brick Awards is also part of Do Something, and the Brick Awards honors young activists. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, the Brick Awards, that's the award for young social entrepreneurs. So if you're 25 and under and you've started some kind of not-for-profit or program that's changing the world, this is like getting a Nobel. It's a big deal. And we're really trying to turn these kids into celebrities. I don't know why Paris Hilton is famous. I don't understand. I don't ever want to see her belly button again. (laughs) And we're going to put 12 kids on TV whose belly buttons I promise you will not see. But um, you'll you'll go deeper. You'll see like their heart and their passion, what they've done. And they're amazing. What are some of the projects that these kids are doing? So one of them, um, Kimmy Weeks, was actually born in Liberia. There was a coup. There were child soldiers. He was malnourished, thrown into a heap of decaying bodies, left for dead. His mom literally picked the bodies and found him. He vowed right then and there to spend the rest of his life working for kids in war-torn countries. And, um, I mean, Charles Taylor, you know, wanted to kill this kid. He, he posted soldiers at his school and everything. He escaped from Liberia, is now an American. He lives in Delaware, and he sends volunteers to places like Sierra Leone and to work with former child soldiers to get them food and reunite them with family and get them educations. That's what I'm talking about. I'd follow him now. Um, he's not It's not just about the future. He's 25 years old. And a lot of them are motivated by personal stories. So the kid who lost his mom two weeks before he started college, so he started an organization at college for kids um, with ailing or infirmed parents, and, and which actually there's a lot of kids in college who have sick uh, family members. Or, you know, the girl who was bitten by a dog quite severely on the face and created a whole organization for treatment of animals, actually. There's some personal reason why they're connected to what they're doing, why they have that fire in, your, in their belly. Because being an entrepreneur really is it's not a nine to five or an, or an eight to eight thing. And speaking of uh, fire in their belly, you right now have a <laughs> fetus in your belly. I do. <laughs> You know, we joke all the time, both of us being entrepreneurs and having done, you know, social good type things. I'm sure this is a dentist in my belly, you know, or or like an eye banker or something like that. I'm going to give birth to Alex P. Keaton. And before I let you go, um, you talk about growing up in Hartford, Connecticut, but your family did have somewhat of an international outlook. Uh, for example, didn't you live in Japan when you were a high school student? Yeah, I, I had a scholarship to... I. I the American government and the Japanese government have this thing where uh, since World War II, we've swapped kids basically um, every summer through an organization called Youth for Understanding. So I spent the whole summer in the rice paddies of Japan, um, which was good because I really was just a kid from Hartford. And also you <laughs> speak Japanese. How do you say, I found a dress for success and I'm having a baby next month? I think I would just say I'm tired. <laughs> I think I'd just say, oyasumi nasai, which is good night. I think that's all I would say to summarize that. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Nancy Lublin, founder of Dress for Success. Coming up, we'll meet David Carmel, 
co-founder of Jumpstart. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. <laughs> 